Thank you all for having me. It is a great privilege to study the Word of the Lord with you this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Haggai. Uh, You may not have a bookmark there, uh, and you may not know where that is. There's no shame in using the table of contents, and it'll be, I'm I'm going to kind of set it up so you got plenty of time to get there, but it's between Zephaniah and Zechariah at the very end of your Old Testament. Uh, so that's where we'll, we'll be today. And, you know, I think about this book as it's, it's summertime, and I'm not sure what summertime means for you. For some, for some folks, it's a slower time. For some, it's busier. For me, it means, it means traveling. It means lots of home projects. It means yard work uh, when it's not raining. It means it, it's, it's a busy uh, seemingly more scattered time. It's a time where it's easy for me to get caught up and involved in what the things that we have going on just in our schedule, uh, the, the trips that are coming up. We have, we have VBS at, at church this next week. Things, just the, the different events and different things that are happening each week. And it made me, at least, it, it, it was convicting to me and made me relate to the people in the book of Haggai as I think about summertime. In the book of Haggai, we we find a people that perhaps you can relate to, a people who are just caught up in their own busy schedules and things that they have going on, caught up in rebuilding a city, building their own houses and making them look nice and setting up this land that they'd been driven out of. They're caught up in their own day-to-day life so much so that they are missing out on what the Lord has for them. They are neglecting being obedient to God and His law and ultimately neglecting rebuilding His temple. They're so caught up in the things that they have going on in their own houses that they neglect the house of the Lord. So, uh, we'll be in Haggai, we'll, we'll break it up into four parts, and uh, we are going to read the whole thing. It's a short book, so we can get through it, and if these words are from the mouth of God, then it's going to be much better than anything I say. So we are going to read the whole thing, but we'll, we'll break it up. And I want to give you an idea of where we are in the story of the Bible when we get to Haggai. Um, and... We are, we're, we're at the end of the prophets, but Haggai has something in common with three other books of the Bible. Uh, when I was growing up in Sunday school, every summer we did something called Bible Olympics. And there was nothing Olympic about it other than we used the Olympic theme song. But it was just Bible trivia, Bible competition. And I remember some, learning about the prophets and learning about what books had in common. And a question, that it just, it's, it's kind of a Bible trivia question you can, you can tuck away for your study later. But a question that came to mind is, as that, that would have been asked during those Bible Olympics times for me as a kid were what do the books of Ezra... Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah have in common. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. What do those have in common? Ezra and Nehemiah, we find kind of the end of our narrative portion of our Old Testament, sort of the, the middle of our Old Testament. And then Haggai and Zechariah, we have the very end of the prophets, the very end of the Old Testament. Yet, what they all have in common is they're dealing with the same events. They're in the same time frame. They're dealing with this period in Israel's history where they're coming back, coming back to the land, coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding. 
and starting over. So God raised up a people for himself, starting with Abraham. He brought them uh, he brought them into Egypt to provide for them. He brought them out of oppression in Egypt, and he made a covenant with them. He made a covenant with them and promised to be their God and that they would be his people as long as they obeyed his law and his rules for them, as long as they didn't break the covenant relationship. And I'm sure, as many of you know, God brought them along patiently and brought them into the city of Jerusalem and uh, raised a king named David up over them and built uh, his son Solomon, built a temple for them. But then their pattern of disobedience and their pattern of breaking the covenant of the Lord and breaking the covenant of the Lord and breaking the covenant of the Lord led them to receive the curses of that covenant. And they, the Lord brought the Babylonians in and they wiped them out and dispersed them amongst the nations. And so God's people have been driven out of their land. And I think the book of 2 Kings describes the destruction in Jerusalem like taking a dish and turning it over and wiping it out. The place was completely destroyed. And a book like Lamentations talks about the horror of what happened there. And now, in our time frame, where we're at in Haggai, the Babylonians have ceased to reign, and the Persians have taken over. At the beginning of the book of Ezra, the king of Persia makes a decree that Ezra and the people of Jerusalem can go back home and start to rebuild. Rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall, and this is what Ezra and Nehemiah talk about for us. But, early on in that king's reign, Early on, after that decree, a new king comes to power. And this king finds out that the Jews are rebuilding their temple and the neighboring countries around Jerusalem don't like what the Jews are doing. And so they write to this king and they say, you, you might want to watch out for these people. They're rebuilding their temple to their great God. And if you look at their past, they've been rebellious. They've tried to overthrow kingdoms. And you might want to put, to put a stop to this. And so, right after the building starts, right after the foundation is laid, this king decrees that they stop, they cease building the temple. And so here are God's people in Jerusalem, and they're reestablishing their freedom and, and, and their, their houses and their culture in Jerusalem, but they've stopped building the temple. And 16 years go by since this king told them to stop. 16 years go by. And no one seems to have any concern for restarting that construction on the temple. They've set up their own homes. They've made sure they have comfortable dwelling places. But they've neglected the house of God. And this is where Haggai comes in. God sends Haggai to his people in this time to speak a word of correction, a word of assurance, and a word of comfort to them. And we see these four, four different addresses from the Lord through Haggai. And technically there's five, but we're going to look at the first two together. So we're going to look at all of chapter 1 first, where we see a word of correction in all of chapter 1. So Haggai chapter 1, look there with me, and I'll read it for us. In the second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent, sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So they're back in the land. They were reestablishing their crops, their homes, their businesses, their society, but something was a little off. Something wasn't quite like it was before the Babylonians came and drove them out of the land. It just wasn't quite right. They were having hailstorms and they were, they, 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 were, they were looking for abundance but coming up short. And God, in his mercy, sends the prophet Haggai to reveal to his people what's going on, why things are off. And things are off because they busied themselves with their own houses and their own crops and their own businesses, but they've neglected the house of the Lord. They've neglected where God's presence would be among them where they would worship God and where priests would meet with God and intercede for the people on their behalf. They just, they just hadn't thought about it in 16 years. They decided that the king told us we need to stop building this house and so we'll just leave it alone. We'll work on our own homes. We'll work on our own crops. And the thrust of this first section, this first word from Haggai, is that the people of God are to consider their ways. 
consider their ways. And even though God, yes, had poured out wrath on his people and judgment on his people, this was a great act of mercy to them. Because these people had disobeyed and disobeyed so much so that they were dismissed from the promised land. And now here they are, not even two decades back into the land. The Lord is bringing them back to restore them. And they're already disobeying again. They're already failing to fulfill their end of the covenant. And even though this is in the Old Testament, even though this is in a time when the people of God related to him through the law, they related to him through that covenant that was made in the Exodus, and even though the people of God are a political nation-state, in this time period. Can't we relate to this? Can't we relate to what's happening here in chapter 1 of Haggai? Yes, God may not send his prophet to Enid, Oklahoma this morning, but he has given us his word. And through his word, he often points out our sin, our blind spots. He often rebukes, he often corrects us. Through his word, he speaks to us. Through his word, does he not? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God refines us and conforms us into the image of his son through the Bible. And so much like this, this act of grace and mercy, the Lord gave his people sending a prophet to point out their blind spot, to point out what they were doing wrong, the Lord, too, has given us his word to help reveal sin in our lives, to help us be shaped and changed after the pattern he's set out for us. And two, not only do we have his word, much like the people of the Old Testament had prophets, but don't we, too, have his presence Don't we too, as Christians, have the stirring up of our spirits by the Lord? I I didn't know this until yesterday, but today is Pentecost Sunday. Seventh day after Easter that commemorates when the Holy Spirit fell on the people of God in Acts 2. And that event is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in the gospel. Jesus promised to send His helper, send a helper to his people so that they might be assured of his presence, so that they might have the presence of God and so that we might be empowered to obey him. John 14, John 14 verses 15 through 17 talks about it like this. John 14, 15 through 17. Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So in the time of Haggai, God dwelt with his people in one specific physical location, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, He sent His Holy Spirit to stir up 
the hearts of the people so that they might obey him in Haggai's time. But for us today, for us today, for those who are in Christ, God has made our bodies a temple of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ's sacrifice, he has made us into a holy of holies. God dwells in you, Christian. In the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and assures you and helps you to obey him. And what is so strikingly powerful about this first section is God's kindness to his people in this. He had given them the law. He had told them how to obey. He had told them what they needed to do. And yet he sends his prophet to speak to them and to remind them of the correction they need to hear. And he follows up after they respond to him in humility in obedience and reverence, he responds by telling them, I am with you. He responds by stirring up their spirits to help them obey. It's a great act of mercy and kindness. And God has acted in mercy and kindness for us today. He's given us his word to point out sin in our lives. And may we, as The Israelites did in Haggai's day. May we respond not in anger or not pointing our fingers at God when we are confronted with correction, but may we in humility and reverence respond with repentance, respond with obedience. And God has given us His Holy Spirit to assure us in that repentance, in that obedience, and to help us to follow Him. God has sent his prophet. God has dwelt with his people in Haggai's day. And today, he's given us his word. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to stir us up so that we might obey. And God does all of this. He does all of this so that he might take pleasure in his people. And that he might be glorified, as he says in verse 8. He acts on their behalf, because God wants to pleasure in his people, take pleasure in his people, and he wants to be glorified through our obedience to him. And so much like I think about myself in the summertime, I want to work on my home projects, I want to make sure my schedule is in order, my, I'm ready for the travel I'm making with family or with church, the events that I'm prepared for, And may the Lord and the power of his Holy Spirit help me not to be so caught up in my own schedule to miss the obedience he's calling me to, to miss the works that he's calling me to. May the Lord and the power of his Spirit help us to obey him. May the Lord assure us with the presence of his Holy Spirit as we seek to follow him and to turn from sin. And this is the good life, to have communion and fellowship with God as he wanted for his people in Haggai. This brings us to our second address from Haggai. So the first one in chapter 1, this brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The second word from God through Haggai. If you'll look there with me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, I'll read it for us. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord So we saw the word of correction in chapter 1, and then here just a couple months later, the Lord gives another word to his people, a word of assurance, a word of promise, peace through his great power and through his comforting presence. If you've seen the movie Rudy, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that movie, it's a a great underdog story, a, a football story. Rudy, the main character, he, he loves this famous pregame speech. And he's got it memorized. And there are, are, are scenes where he's, he's seen where he's in the locker room and he's reciting this, this, this speech that he's got down that just is, is going to pump up the Notre Dame players to go and win the game. And this passage reminds me, it's, it's got to be like one of the greatest pregame speeches ever told. The Lord is encouraging. He is preparing. He is assuring Zerubbabel, Joshua, the people of God for this great work of building the temple. At every turn in, this, in these verses, 1 through 9, the Lord is helping. The Lord is encouraging. The Lord is blessing his people. He tells them that even though this temple may not look like much right now, even though this temple may be bare foundations, it is, there will come a day when it will be greater than the temple of old. It will be greater than the temple of Solomon's day. Work, he says, I am with you. Be strong, I am with you. I am going to take the nations and shake them out. The gold, the silver is mine, and it will fill this place. My glory will fill this temple. The Lord of all heaven and earth is there. He is strengthening them. He is preparing his people to do what he's asked them to do. The God who calls them to obedience equips them for the work and helps them along the way. They know they're up for the task because the Lord is there and he has great power. I think of 
in this passage about shaking out the nations. I think of like a child shaking out the money in a piggy bank. The Lord is going to pick up nations and shake them out and plunder them so that his glory and all his possessions and what treasure belongs in the earth may fill his house. He will fill this house with riches like they've never seen before. And in Jerusalem, he promises to provide peace. They faced exile. They faced famine. They faced death. And the Lord is going to bring such conquering victory that all the possessions will be his and no nation will pose a threat to them anymore. The opposition from their neighbors riding to the king saying, you need to watch out for these people. They're rebellious. You need to stop them from building this temple. That will be no more. The rule of God will be established on the earth. And the second message of Haggai is incredibly inspiring and motivating and helpful and encouraging to his people to work and obey him. He doesn't just call his people to obedience but he brings them along in obedience and he encourages them and empowers them along the way. Not only does God send his prophet to speak a word of correction, but he himself is in their midst, enabling them to do what he's asked them to do. The mercy of the Lord is on great display in the book of Haggai. This leads us to our next section of the text in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 2. Verses 10 through 19. Here we see the Lord give an explanation and conclude it with a promise of blessing. So chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, look with me there. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. 
So this third prophetic word in Haggai comes to us with an analogy. Haggai approaches the priests, the priests, and discusses their laws for purity. So you can find a description of, of these laws in a place like Leviticus 22, but he describes these purity laws and talks to the priests, has a conversation with them to illustrate the state of the people of God in Jerusalem. Under the old covenant law, the priests were to offer sacrifices. And the priests, who didn't have land or cattle, but their inheritance was God himself, the priests were to take a portion of these sacrifices for food. They were to offer them and then eat of them. And uh, they, were, they were to follow these, these purity laws so that they would be clean in approaching the Lord, offering sacrifices to him. However, for instance, if a priest were to touch a dead animal or a dead body, then he would become unclean. And if he was unclean, he could not approach these sacrifices. He could not approach anything that was holy or the food that, that, that the Lord provided for him through these sacrifices. He couldn't approach it, at least until that evening or until he had washed, he'd bathed in water. Because if a, a priest was unclean, well, then whatever he touched became unclean as well. And that's the point of this analogy for the people of God. That being impure, being unclean, that is contagious. That spreads. That goes to whatever you touch. It becomes unclean if you yourself are unclean. But being pure, being clean, being holy, that's not necessarily contagious. If a clean person uh, if a clean person touches something, it does not necessarily become clean. And God's people in this time were impure. They, not because they had touched a dead body, not because they had, had, had done, failed to follow the purity laws for the priests. No, they were unclean because they had neglected the statutes of God, the law of God, the covenant that they had promised to obey. They had neglected what they said they would do. They didn't long for the glory of the Lord in His house. They didn't long to rebuild His house so that they might worship Him there. They just busied themselves with their daily tasks and with their paneled homes and with their crops and the things that they had going on. They were concerned about pursuing abundance. And doesn't that hit home, at least for me? Concern about pursuing abundance, pursuing comfort, pursuing my own concerns. An abundance of food, luxurious living space. So the worship they offered was unclean because they were being disobedient to the Lord. And they needed to repent and be, clean, and be cleansed so that the Lord would be honored among them. And yeah, we don't, we don't follow the Lord through sacrifices or through His temple in a specific place like they did. Um, we don't do that today. But isn't there something we can apply from this as well? Doesn't first, doesn't from this analogy. Doesn't 1 Corinthians tell us that bad company corrupts good character? Isn't there something about if we are unclean or if we are around consistently 
persistently around sin or the unclean that it's contagious. We have to be intentional about keeping ourselves pure just by spending time, significant amount of time with the wrong people. We ourselves can become corrupt. And by just being around a righteous person, that doesn't make us righteous, right? Only through repentance and faith in Jesus can we be made holy like he is holy. And what's remarkable about all of this is that in spite of this impurity, in spite of the sin and selfishness of the people that had endured throughout all of their history, that had endured for these last 16 years when they failed to rebuild the temple of the Lord, even in spite of all of that, for them there is forgiveness and grace. For them, when they turn to the Lord in repentance and, and, and ask Him for forgiveness and decide to obey Him and receive forgiveness, they actually have it. There actually is promise of blessing from this day forward. There's promise of peace, as we heard in the address before. The Lord has spoken a word of correction to His people. They responded with repentance and obedience. And the Lord has promised to bless all who trust in Him and obey Him. And the same is true for us today. All who trust in Christ will receive blessing in Him. And this brings us to the culmination of this blessing at the end of chapter 2. The culmination in this final Address in verses 20 through 23. The culmination of this blessing and how it will come. If you look there, chapter 2, verse 20, I'll read it for us to the end. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Have you noticed who Haggai has been talking to throughout his prophecy? Have you noticed who he's addressed? He's repeatedly spoken to Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people in Jerusalem. So a place like 1-1. Haggai 1-1 says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. In 1.14, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. In Haggai 2, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. Those first three addresses are dealing with those three people. Those three, in one case, a group of people. 
So the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, and then all the exiles who had been returned to the land. And then in our last two addresses, these final two times, we see him specifically addressing the priests, which Joshua would have been represented uh, represented there. And now, this time, this second time on this same day, the word of the Lord came to Haggai to Zerubbabel. So the priests, their promised blessing through repentance and obedience. And Zerubbabel, this promised blessing in a different way. Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. We know from a place like 1 Chronicles 3, Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, the king. As David's son Solomon was asked to build the Lord a house, now David's descendant, Zerubbabel, is asked to rebuild that house. And if you know much about David, you know that God promised him in 2 Samuel 7 that his descendants would reign forever, that he would establish an eternal throne through him. And here, at the end of Haggai, The Lord has promised to overthrow nations and kingdoms and to make the the descendant of David, the son of David, his servant, like a signet ring. I don't know if any of you wear a, a signet ring, but it's a sign of possession or belonging. It's a sign of a close, personal, often familial relationship that you and your kin may be represented by it. And in Zerubbabel's case, the king who descends from his line will be the identity by which the Lord is known. This king to come through Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring for the Lord. A signet ring for the Lord by which he will identify himself. This blessing that's coming, this kingdom that's coming, this strength that's coming through Zerubbabel, will come through a king who will reign victoriously forever. This blessing he's talking about is not just for the Hebrew people, but this is the blessing that would come through the true son of David, Jesus the Christ. The king who would come to bless all the nations by establishing his rule. The king who would come, who would die on a cross, who would rise from the dead, defeating enemies like sin and death, not just political enemies, but sin and death and Satan, establishing an eternal rule on the earth. A day is coming when those powers of the world would be overthrown, Haggai says. When the rulers and powers on the earth that demand our allegiance will be no more. The king in Zerubbabel's line reigns victorious. And Jesus is seated in power at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, and he will come again to fully establish his rule and reign, to rid this place of sin and death. And all who are in Jesus will be blessed. 
If you are a Christian, you can be confident that these promises in Haggai for peace, these promises in Haggai of promised presence, these promises in Haggai of power, these promises in Haggai that the Lord will empower you and help you to obey, that these promises, if you are in Christ, this promise of blessing is for you too. And if you're not a Christian, then where will you stand? Where will you be on that day when Jesus returns to overthrow the kingdoms of the earth? What will be your fate? Well, just as God has responded to the repentance and faith of the Israelites in Haggai with mercy and grace and forgiveness and blessing. For you too, if you are not a Christian, if you respond to the mercy and grace he's poured out for you in the Son, Jesus Christ, you too will receive peace and blessing. And so I want to conclude with a promise of God that he made long before this day right after he had established his covenant, his law with his people. God told them what would happen. And God told them of his mercy and grace that would come for them. And this mercy and grace he promised is true for us today. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God has just laid out the stipulations of his law for his people. He's just told them, if you obey my commands, if you follow this law, you will be blessed. If you don't follow the law, then you will be cursed. And in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 1, he says this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. And when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the Lord knew. The Lord knew how this would play out. He knew that the blessing and the curses would come upon his people. He knew that they would turn back to him and he knew he would restore them and bless them 
in greater ways than he had blessed them before. He knew that he would circumcise their hearts so that they can love the Lord their God. He knew that, that through it, he would empower them to obey, to obey the voice of the Lord. He knew that it was impossible for them to obey, but that he would make a way through his son Jesus, that Jesus would obey perfectly for them, and that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to give them power to follow the Lord and to love the Lord. He knew that he would equip his people and restore them to himself. And this mercy and grace has been fully fleshed out and fully poured out for us today through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And so as we think about the God who we worship, as we think about struggling to obey and struggling to deny ourselves and follow him, the Lord has told us from the very beginning that we don't do this on our own but that he sent his son, in fact, to obey for us because we can't perfectly. And he sent his spirit so that we can love him and so that we can obey him and follow his commands. The Lord has not just called us to obey and left us on our own to do it. The Lord has enabled us to do it and to grow in him. And he's given us his word to point it out. He's given us his presence to assure us and he's given us his spirit to give us the power to obey. So may we trust in him. May we follow him. May we receive the correction of his word. And may we, in the power of his spirit, obey him and receive his blessing. That he will delight in us. Would you pray with me?